Welcome everyone to the She Can Fix It podcast. My name is Dr. Alana Munger. On this episode, we have a great interview with Dr. Claire Shannon. Dr. Shannon is a pediatric orthopedic surgeon at the Paley Orthopedic and Spine Institute who specializes in limb lengthening and deformity correction. I had a great time speaking with Dr. Shannon and also learned a lot of new things about the field of limb lengthening and reconstruction. I hope you enjoy this episode of the She Can Fix It podcast with Dr. Claire Shannon. Dr. Claire Shannon, thank you so much for joining us on the She Can Fix It podcast. I am so excited to speak with you and learn more about limb lengthening and deformity correction. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. I am very excited to be here. I uh, was a little jealous of some of my colleagues and mentors who've been on this before me. So it was uh, (laughs) definitely exciting when I got the invitation. So I'm very happy to be here. We are so excited for you to be here. And I would love to start off with your background. So in your own words, can you describe where you went to your hometown, medical school, residency, fellowship, and your post-fellowship years. Yeah, absolutely. So I am originally from Canada. I was born and raised in Toronto um, and did all of my schooling, education, everything up there until I finished undergrad. I had the fortunate uh, upbringing to have both passports, U.S. and Canadian. My mom's actually American from Michigan. So I was able to have both those things, which made it really easy to bounce back and forth. But I, um, I didn't come from a medical family. Everybody were teachers. So when I said I wanted to go to med school, they all thought I was a little crazy because I was giving up, you know, all my summers off, Christmas, Mm -hmm. Easter, spring break, all the, you know, and I was like, no, no, but I really want to do this. And I don't have a great reason why I just, when I was about 12, decided I'm going to be a doctor. And that was kind of the end of it. Um, so I, did three years of undergrad and a bunch of summer courses and stuff so I could sort of get out and apply early. And Mm -hmm. I did my first round. I actually only applied in the U.S. because the Canadian system, it's just a numbers game. There's just not a lot of spots. So I Mm -hmm. um, applied a bunch of places kind of as a practice round and ended up getting in off the wait list to the University of Rochester. And little did I know, so started just a fabulous journey. So I was in upstate New York then for medical school, and I thought I was going to do emergency medicine. So I spent all my time in the ER and all my time with trauma. And then I realized as I did rotations that I was like, oh, no, I'm meant to be a surgeon. I like to cut things. So I actually had no idea about ortho. I was thinking vascular surgery, trauma surgery. And I was in the ER one day, and uh, one of the ortho residents was like, hey, come work with me. So I was like, all right, I'll help you put this traction pin in and then made my way down to the OR with them where I watched this tiny little female chief resident orthopedic surgeon bang this tibial nail in. And I was like, that's it. I know exactly what I want to do. <laughs> so I took a research year um, between my third and fourth year to get myself prepped and then matched to residency at Case Western in Cleveland, Ohio, where I just had some absolutely fabulous training, some amazing mentors Um, who really pushed me and guided me and forced me to be better. Um, And then ended up doing my pediatric orthopedic fellowship at the Hospital for Sick Children back up in Toronto. So a nice little hometown reunion for a while. And then um, took my first job actually at Johns Hopkins. So I moved down to Baltimore, where I spent two years um, starting to build a deformity and limb lengthening practice there. And then um, subsequently ran into Dr. Paley and I was offered a job to move down here to lovely, sunny West Palm Beach, Florida. And so I transitioned my practice down to the Paley Institute, which is where I currently am working. And I've been here for about two years now, actually, two years next week. Wow. Do you, are you just so, so completely just with the weather change when you grew up in Toronto and then being in sunny, sunny, sunny Florida? It's, uh, yeah, it's taken some adjusting. I mean, the sunshine is lovely. You don't realize how much you miss it when you're used to, you know, growing up in winters where it's like five days of total sunlight. And now you're like, (laughs) oh, it's sunny all the time. Wow, I really do feel better. Seasonal affective disorder is a real thing. Um, 
but I definitely do miss seasons. You know, it's kind of always summer. So I Mm -hmm. like to go home, especially in the fall and the spring, which is, I think everybody says fall is their favorite, but it definitely is mine. Nice. Awesome. And I know that you mentioned that you uh, received specialized training in pediatric uh, and became a pediatric orthopedic surgeon. I was hoping you can describe what inspired you to pursue Uh, pediatric orthopedics. Absolutely. So my background, you know, coming from thinking I was going to be an emergency medicine provider, and I always loved the the acute, the scrape them up, you know, put them back together. Um, So I initially, when I started residency, I was all gung-ho for orthotrauma. I was like, the bigger, the badder, the uglier, the more Mm -hmm. the bone's poking out, the more pieces it's in, bring it on. I love this stuff. Um, And I'm also, I'm the kind of person that puts 120% into everything. So, you know, I'm going to be there till it's done, you know, so the idea of evenings, weekends, all those things, you start to sort of step back and think about it in conjunction with the rest of your life. And it's, I sort of started to look at it and realized it was going to be a really hard thing for me to sustain, Mm -hmm. not because of the hours, but the patient population was where I really struggled. You know, if I'm going to put my absolute everything in and unfortunately with the trauma population and it's not all of them, some of them are, you know, really great people who just an unfortunate accident, but there's a lot of people who make a lot of poor life choices and end up in a situation where you're then helping them. And it's really hard to give everything when you're not getting it back. And I realized that that was going to be a huge drain on me. And so I was sort of starting to flounder thinking like, Oh my God, what am I going to do? I got to change my plans. And one of my mentors, um, Raymond Liu, who's at Case Western at Rainbow Babies and Children's, um, sort of, you know, a little bit took me under his wing and was like, come see my pediatric world. Come, (laughs) come do these deformity cases with me. And I was like, Oh, Oh, I can do like big, you know, big bad surgery on little Mm -hmm. tiny limbs and these kids like come running down the hallway and like they're amazing and they're happy and they're they're better and I just fell in love with it absolutely Mm -hmm. fell in love with it and that was it that was that was from there on out I had a new path and that's where I went nice so you knew on, on from the beginning that you wanted to do limb lengthening and deformity correction rather than first being exposed to pediatric orthopedics and then discovering the world of limb lengthening and deformity correction. Yeah, they kind of came hand in hand for me. Um, I still, you know, I, I thought about going into more of like a hip preservation kind of vein, but I always knew I wanted to do, I wasn't just expecting to do sort of, you know, basic general you know, just the elbow fractures and just this. And I, sports was never really my particular love. Um, mm-hmm. It's a cool specialty and I loved all my sports attendings, but I was like, yeah, no, ACL is not my favorite surgery. Um, and spine, pediatric spine scoliosis correction is still hands down to this day, despite all the stuff I do, the coolest thing in the world is watching the spine straighten in front of your eyes as you put the rods in but I just didn't want to do spine. It just didn't, it didn't call to me. Um, Mm -hmm. so I sort of knew I was going more into the limb side. And as I got further into it, um, especially once I got into fellowship, I was still kind of in the hip versus deformity, um, debate. And I spent my first three months actually a fellowship with a hip guy and a deformity guy. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And Simon Kelly, who is my deformity attending totally won out. And I just was over the moon (laughs) and I was like, Oh yeah. Okay decision made. This is what I want to do. I love this stuff. So yeah, it's, but it was definitely, I kind of got introduced to all of it at the same time. And despite, um, I worked under George Thompson was the head of the pediatric department at Case Western and he was trying to get me to do spine so badly. It's like, come on, you know, you love it. Come on, you know, you love it. And I was like, yeah, but let's talk about your Perthes work. (laughs) So that's special. And I know that you're one of the unique folks in the country who, you know, you spend a lot of time doing limb lengthening and reconstruction. I was hoping you can basically provide our listeners with kind of a brief overview of your practice and the conditions that you commonly see in your practice as someone who specializes in limb lengthening and deformity correction. Yeah. So, I mean, I joke with, you know, friends and patients that, 
I essentially specialize in the weird, the rare, and the, the weird, the rare, and the wacky. Um, you know, the less likely everyone else is to see it, the more likely it's going to show up in this practice. So, um, in much of orthopedics, we love to use acronyms for everything, you know, but I, most of what I see can be broken down into two or three letter, you know, titles. So a lot of it is pediatric congenital limb deformity. So the most common ones being fibular hemimelia, congenital femoral deficiency, tibial hemimelia. Um, we see a lot of patients with congenital pseudoarthrosis of the tibia, and then we see a lot of upper extremity and hand as well. So we see a lot of radial club hand, um, radial, you know, or absent radius, radial dysplasias. And then we also see a ton of skeletal dysplasias. So achondroplasia, pseudoachondroplasia, hypochondroplasia, spinoepiphyseal dysplasia, multiple epiphyseal dysplasia. I mean, you name it and we see it. And these are, mm-hmm. you know, funny enough things when you look at them, they're one in 50,000, one in 250,000, one in a million um, some people in their entire practice and their entire career may see one or none. And I've got, you know, four or five of them in a week. So it's, it's a very, very cool experience, but, um, yeah, primarily we see a lot of the kids, you know, born with malformed limbs. We do also treat a lot of, um, you know, post-traumatic or others. So we get a lot of kids who've had growth arrest due to fracture or um, neonatal sepsis. So, hmm. you know, bad infections early on that affect the growth plates, and then they get either growth arrest or partial growth arrest, which is more complicated because then they get, you know, bending deformities as opposed to just a straight short limb. Hmm. Um, we also still treat, I'd say my practice is probably still about between 20 to 30% adult, depending on the time of year. Um, we get a lot of patients sometimes from other countries who have almost like post polio pictures still. Um, mm-hmm. we get a lot of like, um, contractures. So post stroke or, you know, post other conditions. And then, um, more recently we brought in a new partner, um, who does primarily adult trauma, but we're building, starting to build an osseous integration program here. So we will often, mm-hmm. they'll come in through our clinic and then we'll kind of refer them in, internally so it's it's an amazing spectrum, despite the sort of weird, rare, little niche specialty. But it's, yeah, it's almost everything you can break down into some kind of lettered diagnosis. Yeah, wow. And I know that you mentioned that, you know, within this world, there are both kind of the pediatric side of it as well as the adult side of it. And what are sort of the advantages or disadvantages when doing these cases for a child versus doing these cases in an adult? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's a lot of differences just in what procedures you're doing in the kids versus the adults. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, and this, I can obviously talk about this stuff for a very long time if given the opportunity. (laughs) Um, You know, I think a lot of the advantages of particularly working with children is that you know, first and foremost, they are amazingly resilient little creatures. Um, mm-hmm. It is remarkable to see, you know, you do this major surgery on a kid and two days later they're up running around and their parents are like, oh, they haven't taken pain meds like, you know, since the day after. And you're like, okay. Yeah. Um, and, they, you know, they heal really quickly. Most kids, six weeks and you're like, okay, off, go, you know, run, weight bear, do all these things, you know, as opposed to kind of patiently waiting, watching and most of them don't come with the associated comorbidities. So you're not worried about the diabetes. You're not trying to convince them to quit smoking. You're not, you know, we get some obesity and some of that stuff. But in the little, little kids, that's often not even an issue yet. Um, you know, I think you have to look at with kids, you've obviously got to consider the fact that they're still growing. And that can be an advantage or a disadvantage. Um, you know, the advantage is you can use that physis to help alter the shape of the bone by doing guided growth, by doing, you know, growth stoppages, but you also can get, you know, get yourself into trouble if you don't consider the future growth that's coming. Cause you may need to do a procedure and then may have to do it over again because that growth plate mm-hmm. will thwart you. Um, the, you know, I think also kids abilities to, build new neural pathways for things. That plasticity of their little brains is a huge advantage when you're doing these big reconstructions. 
because you're going to reroute things, connect things where they didn't used to be connected. You know, you're going to take a finger and turn it into a thumb. You're going to do all these things. And their brain just says, oh, OK, I'm going to do this now. And I think for adults, that often is much more of a challenge. It's a little harder for them to figure out, you know, how do I fire this to do this? And we objectively see that when we do tendon transfers and things that it takes our adults almost twice as long to sort of figure those things mm. out. Um, you know, I think the disadvantages is, well, as like I said, you've got, you know, the issue of, you know, physial growth and sometimes it limits and you can't do the thing you want to do because what they really need, the physis is in your way. Um, so you have to find another solution or find another way or, you know, innovate a new way to treat this thing or lengthen this bone. Um, I think it can be looked at as a, as a disadvantage or an advantage is that, you know, when you treat an adult, you, that's your patient. And for the most part, they've got family members and things that are involved, but they're their decision maker. They're the one that you're really having the conversations with. And when you treat a kid, you're really treating the whole family. And you kind of have to remember that because it's not just about this kid's leg. You're telling this family that they need to be here for six months and they have other kids and, a, you know, a spouse and they've got jobs and they've got, you know, and so it becomes much more than just the medical treatment you have to really consider. And sometimes those, that family is, you know, they're, everyone's on the same team and they're your allies and, you know, you work together and you get this kid through this thing. And sometimes, you know, if, if you can't, you have to really work hard to convince them they're on your team because otherwise you're working against each other and then it can be really difficult. And for a lot of people, when they think about pediatrics, people go, oh God, the families, you have to deal with the parents. <laughs> oh, it's terrifying. And, you know, it's one of those things, my colleagues in particular, you know, my, my Paley is so funny. He will tell, he's like, uh, this one's particularly difficult. This is your specialty. We will give them to you. Cause I've seemed <laughs> to have found this knack for, you know, finding a way to connect with these parents. And what I've found, and I think is a good piece of advice, especially, you know, for people in training is most of the time a negative reaction is because of fear. It's because of uncertainty. It's because of mm -hmm. anxiety and if you can work through those things and, you know, you remind that mama that she's being mama bear, of course, she's protective of her child, you know, they're in pain right. or they're having a problem. And, you know, having that conversation, we're on the same team. We're both here to get to the same goal often helps to break down that barrier. But, mm. you know, for a lot of people, that can be one of the less appealing parts of pediatrics. Um, I think the other thing that can be really difficult about working with kids is for a lot of people, you know, and I don't have my own children yet, but a lot of people do. And especially a lot of women in ortho have, you know, they've got their own kids and seeing a kid who's in pain or, you know, doing a procedure that, you know, is going to cause pain or cause, I think mm -hmm. can be something that's sometimes hard to rationalize. It's hard to get past that. Um, and then, you know, I looking at a lot of the stuff we do, I'm seeing these kids for their entire childhoods. You know, they're coming in for treatment at 18 months and then four years old and eight years old and 12 years old. And sometimes we're seeing them more frequently than that. And they're having lots of surgeries and knowing that you're impacting their childhood and seeing, you know, the, the PTSD that comes with it. You know, when you walk in the room and they scream at you and you haven't even gotten near them because it is the fear and the, you know, that's hard. That can be really hard. Mm -hmm. And I think with kids, because no one ever wants to upset a kid, not that you want to upset your adult patients either, but I think it's sometimes easier to push yourself through right. that because you're, you know, you can rationalize with them that you're doing, you know, something that is good for them. And kids, it's hard to explain that to a two-year-old. They just, they won't get it. So, mm -hmm. but this, I think ultimately though, for me, the satisfying part of working with kids is that it's that end, you know, you're like, no, no, hold on. You can't run on this yet. You know, but watching them just that drive to go back to being a kid, they want to run, they want to jump, they want to play and seeing that, you know, that end factor just makes it worth it. Hmm. Oh, that's amazing. Um, I've heard in the past when speaking with other surgeons about, you know, the field of limb lengthening and reconstruction that, you know, you can kind of separate some of these, for these kids, the deformities into, you know, are you working to try to correct a curved bone or are you trying to lengthen a bone or try to fill a bone defect? 
do you agree with that kind of general separation and do you prefer one over the other or do you just like, you like it all? I mean, I love it all. (laughs) (laughs) It's, it's so hard. Like people, you know, it's, it's so hard to pick and choose the pieces because it's also interconnected. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, you'll see, we'll see a new patient and one of the first conversations we have with that patient and their family is the life plan because, you know, Mm. you're meeting somebody in their, you know, their child's a year old or six months old. And we're talking about what we're going to be doing when they're 15. So it's, it's the whole staging of it. And I think you can break things into general categories. And so, yes, it's, you know, are you straightening a curved bone? Are you lengthening a short bone? Are you replacing missing bone? But so many of these things go together and they're so intermixed because many of these congenital syndromes, you know, step one is straighten the curved bone. Step two is lengthen the now short Mm -hmm. but straight bone. And then step, you know, two B is, oh, it's curved again. Hold on, put an eight plate in to straighten it out again and then lengthen it again. And then, you know, and maybe you're lengthening and they end up with an infection and now you have a bone defect that you've got to be able to fill. So it's hard to truly separate them, Hmm. but they're, you know, they really are all interwoven. I personally, for me, if I had to pick, I really like the reconstructions. I love Hmm. the, you know, the super hip procedure where you take it all apart and put it all back together. And it goes from being this, you know, 270 degree deformed femur to all of a sudden it magically looks like a normal femur on the x-ray again. Mm. Or, you know, a congenital pseudoarthrosis where you take this bone that's been broken for six years of their life and you straighten it all out and put all this bone graft in and it's immediately, I mean, the immediate change in the shape of the leg is always, every time I'm like, oh, this is so cool, you know, and six weeks later this thing is healed and it's never going to break again. So it's, those are the things to me that I really love. The lengthenings are very cool. And I think watching the progress and I sort of joke every time I come in to see these patients for follow-up and I'm like, Oh my gosh, look how much longer your leg already is. You know, and you get these little kids who giggle and laugh and you know, but it's the reconstruction to me that first initial, you take something where, you know, this kid's foot's basically touching their behind and they're, you know, and like wrapped underneath them and you straighten that thing out. And all of a sudden you're like, Oh, Okay. And to watch the parents' faces, because it goes from being this thing that's almost this like insurmountable monumental challenge that we're going to reconstruct this leg. And they're like, oh, oh, the leg is straight. Oh, okay, we can work from here. You know, and it's all of a sudden the pieces fall into place. And it's right. I just think it's so cool. Not to mention the anatomy you see in this in these cases is just mind blowing every time. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I joke with Dr. Paley because he's been doing this a lot longer than I have, you know, and I'm like, really, do you ever get tired of this? And he's like, oh, heck no. He's like, you know, I'm almost 40 years in and every time I'm like, this is so cool. So I hope to God I keep that kind of attitude the whole time, you know? Yeah, that's amazing. What was awesome was that there was a recent um, JBJS article and it was like perfect timing for this where um, there was a guest editorial called What's New in Limb Lengthening and Deformity Correction. And I would love to ask your opinion on some of the topics that were discussed in this article. Yeah, absolutely. And, Mark Dahl's a yeah, great guy. I know he's done it a couple of times over the years and he's uh, he's really a very accomplished surgeon and he does a very good job of these. I've read a few of them over the years. Yes. No, it honestly, it was, it was great. It was very educational and, uh, and it was great. And one of the things that um, they spoke about in this article was the ability to utilize different techniques in the in this world in the sense that you have bone transport and distraction osteogenesis you have the mascalay technique you have vascularized bone transfer and i was hoping you can provide our listeners with just a brief description of you know these various techniques the pros and cons in each and which do you prefer to utilize in your practice yeah so you know the it's become really a very sort of in vogue topic in terms of talking about bone defects. Um, I think it's really come to light, especially with a lot of the recent, you know, military, um, you know, we've had some pretty significant military interventions in the world. And with that come a lot of severe limb injuries. 
as mm-hmm. car technology and things have changed, what we've seen is more people surviving, you know, major um, automobile trauma, but we see more and more limb defects. Um, and so this has really become something that a lot of people have been pushing on. And so, you know, these are three of the main techniques that people talk about. And so, you know, the bone transport um, is, it's been around for a long time, actually. It was, you know, it was developed back with all of the original Elisarov um, external fixation. And so the idea of it, um, the original method anyways, was you place this frame on the outside of the leg with rings and wires and you captured a segment of bone. You then pull that bone. So you cut it and then pull the bone. So you're lengthening, you're creating new bone in the gap behind where you're pulling it, but you're pulling this independent segment down to dock into you know, the other part of the bone. So you're filling in the defect as you go. Um, There's some newer technology that's come out for this. They actually developed an internal device, the bone transport nail. And one of my Mm -hmm. partners here, Steve Quinnen, was part of the um, development team for that. And, you know, that in and of itself, just the fact that we've moved from this big external cage to an internal device is really a step in the right direction. Um, still doing the same idea where you're using this, you know, device inside the bone, but capturing the middle segment and then pulling it across the defect. Um, the other technique they mentioned, the mascalay, uh, that was developed by Dr. Mascalay. And essentially what it is, is it's, you're trying to induce a membrane in the defect. So this technique involves going in and actually debriding out any dead bone or fibrous tissue or infected material, and then filling that defect with something temporarily. So typically we use bone cement, often laden with antibiotics to help sterilize the area. Um, and that while that cement sits there, hold, helping to hold out the length of the bone and maintain the shape, the tissue forms essentially a membrane around it. And then once that membrane is matured, so somewhere between typically six and eight weeks, you go in and very carefully split open the membrane, like you'd split open periosteum and take that spacer out. So you take the cement out and then you take your bone graft. Um, And there's numerous ways to get bone grafts. A lot of people will do rhea reaming. So they'll take it from the inside of the femoral canal. Mm -hmm. Um, Pelvic iliac crest. So pelvic graft is still technically the gold standard. And, you know, depending on your technique of harvest, I mean, you can get an adult pelvis, you could get, you know, almost probably 70 cc's if you really open the whole thing up. Um, Mm -hmm. And then you want to fill that bone graft inside that membrane, seal the membrane back up, and it acts like a periosteum. So it helps with the maturation of that bone graft to fill in that void. Vascularized bone transfers are sort of the most complicated initially out of this. I say initially because bone transport has its own hosts of you know complications. But if you're going to take a, say, a fibula with its pedicle, with its blood vessels and connect it in, obviously you've got to have the ability to do microsurgery. And then you have to monitor it to make sure that mm-hmm. that blood flow continues in. The whole goal is that you put that piece of vascularized bone in it's going to then heal to the ends of the bones that you've put it, you know, in between as usually an intercalary segment and revascularize. And then over time, it will hypertrophy to try to accept the weight load. Like, so if you were moving it into a tibia or a femur, mm-hmm. um, you know, so all three of these techniques are, as you can see, quite different. They all in the end want to accomplish the same goal, but I, they're not necessarily oh, I would do this one versus this one. They're all sort of set for different um, situations. Mm-hmm. So, you know, because oftentimes when people come in and they have a post-traumatic defect, you know, they may have a non-union or an infected area, but the bone's already shortened. The bone is already deformed. So to go in and just say, oh, I'll just debris it and stuff the cement in there and then put some bone graft in doesn't treat right. the rest of the issue. Whereas if you're going to put them into an external fixator to do bone transport, you can also correct and straighten while you're then, you know, separately pulling that piece or do it in staged fashion where you correct the part of the bone, get it up to length, then come back in, modify your fixator and do your transport. 
Um, the nail is good for transport, but it's not going to do a lot of deformity correction. So they're all a little bit different. And then obviously a vascularized bone graft, you've got to have the resources to do that and monitor that. Um, and if you're trying to, you know, graft a giant defect in a femur, you can imagine putting a spindly little fibula in there, not necessarily <laughs> the most helpful. So they're really all separate. So it's hard to sort of say, oh, I prefer this one or I prefer that one. I think the most important thing is if you're going to be an orthopedic surgeon and treating this kind of stuff, it's like anything. You've got to have as many tools in your tool belt as possible. And so being comfortable with, proficient with, you know, the majority of these techniques or knowing who your local microsurgeon is, if you decide you need a, you know, vascularized fibula, making sure you sort of know how to access all those things. That's the most important thing so that you've got all of these tools in your belt in order to make sure your patient's getting the best option. Nice. Perfect. And I know that earlier you had mentioned um, the fact that you see um, conditions in children in which the upper limb is affected. And what's interesting is that in, you know, as I'm going through residency and everything, you, you don't hear it as often. Um, and I was hoping you can kind of describe if there are any special considerations that you need to take into account when you're doing these procedures in the upper limb versus doing these procedures in the lower limb. Yeah. So, you know, I think, the arms tend to be a less commonly addressed thing. And I think first and foremost, the reason is more arm deformities, arm shortening is better tolerated purely due mm. to the fact that we don't walk on our arms. Right. So when you have a leg length issue or a, you know, bad deformity around the knee, it's much more noticed because it affects your actual mechanical weight bearing. You're going to get pain because of abnormal stresses or you're, you know, you're going to notice your leg length difference because you're walking on it. You need to shoe lift or you're limping or, you know, whereas if your humerus is four inches shorter, other than the fact that, you know, you can't reach things as well with the shorter one, it's not as functional a deficit. Um, mm -hmm. the arm also, if you think about the overall mobility of the shoulder, the elbow, the wrist, you can accommodate for a deformity a lot more. So someone who's having, you know, really bad valgus of the knee, they all want to come in and be seen or really bad varus. You know, they all want to come in and be seen because they're having knee issues. We see patients all the time who have restricted supination or pronation, but because they've got really good shoulder mobility, they didn't even know. You're like, oh, you, you don't you know, like you don't pronate and they're like, huh, but they just wing their arm out and they have no problem. And they literally live their life on a computer. Um, so I think that's why it doesn't get addressed as often. Hmm. We do definitely treat, you know, here at the Paley Institute, a lot of upper extremity deformity and lengthening, you know, so I mentioned, um, absent radius or radial dysplasia. So radial club hand, we treat a lot of, we do a lot of humeral lengthening, especially in the short stature dysplasias. So achondroplasia, hypochondroplasia, pseudochondroplasia. Um, we also, you know, and we'll do forearm lengthening subsequent to the, the wrist reconstruction in the radial club hand kids. We also um, see a lot of congenital hand. So more recently, we've actually had an uptick in kids coming in who have congenital amputations of the fingers. And we've actually, um, Dr. Paley has been very successful and, you know, we've done a bunch since I arrived here of doing toe phalangeal transplants. So you can mm. actually take a phalanx from the toe and put it into the finger nubbin and transfer the tendons to it. And if, as long as you do it early enough, so typically we like to do it before they're, you know, really before they're about 14 months. So the earlier, the better. Mm. Right. That phalanx will continue to grow because your phalanges are endochondral ossification as opposed to just, you know, they do have the growth plate on them, but they will start to expand. And then because they're so small and cartilaginous at that age, you're getting, um, they actually can revascularize quite well. Hmm. So then they'll grow. And then subsequently, because we don't put in three phalanges, you can't make joints, but you can then have a nubbin and we can then lengthen those phalanges are lengthened the metacarpals later on in life. So we've had, you know, more and more of those coming in. 
Because even though it's not a fully flexible finger, having a post that you can pinch or grab gives that hand a dramatically increased function. Right. So, you know, there's there's all these little things. Um, in terms of, you know, special considerations, I think, you know, you have to be aware of the fact that, again, your, you know, your arms are how you are, how you interact with the world. So for many patients, their drive to lengthen is that, you know, in our, for instance, in a lot of the achondroplasia population, if they've had leg lengthening, their humor, you know, their arm proportion, they become quite short and it becomes very difficult for them to, you know, reach for personal hygiene, becomes very Mm -hmm. difficult to reach to get to a steering wheel and not be sitting up against it. So just for day-to-day activities, lengthening of the arms improves their function. Um, We don't do as much, you know, you don't see as much just cosmetic. We've got many patients who they come in, we've followed them along because they've had a growth arrest in the humerus and they may have a two or three inch discrepancy. But for many of them, they choose not to lengthen because they're doing just fine. I think, you know, even though the arm accommodates, people get really upset when they do end up getting stuck with a contracture that they didn't have. So one of the issues when we lengthen arms is unlike a leg where you can brace it or you can cross a joint, you know, with a fixator, arm lengthening, particularly if you're doing, say, internal humeral lengthening, you have to be very cautious of developing elbow flexion contractures. You have to really think about where you make your osteotomy, because if you do it above the deltoid tuberosity, you're going to lengthen the deltoid and they're going to end up with a shoulder abduction contracture. So, mm-hmm. you know, it we have to make these same considerations in the leg, particularly in the tibia, but it becomes even more apparent, I think, in the arms, because again, even though you walk on your legs, you're staring at your arms all day and you're reaching and grabbing and feeding yourself and putting your clothes on and, you know, if your arm now can't do that thing that it did because we were trying to make you functionally better by lengthening, that can be a big problem. So we really have to make sure you're consi- you, that you take those things into consideration. Hmm. And also I've just never even, yeah, I'd never even thought of that. That just blows my mind. Yeah. It's also just the arm and the hand, I think to a lot of people is a little scary because it's, especially in kids, right? They're little there's a bajillion things in there, all the nerves, all the tendons, all the blood vessels. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, going in and doing a lateral approach to a femur and, you know, doing a femur osteotomy is something that I think just about everybody in ortho feels super comfortable doing. Going in and, you know, osteotomizing a ulna, you know, and where there's no radius and you've moved all these things around can be a little bit more, you know, daunting sometimes. Mm-hmm. Nice. That's very cool. One of the things, you know, this was a fantastic guest editorial and a great read. And I thought that one of the things that I wished was at the end was um, a little paragraphs discussing the future directions within the field. And so I was hoping that you can kind of describe the areas that you are excited to see over the next few years, as well as the areas that you think, you know what, we need to spend more time and we need to make this better. Yeah. So, you know, I know, I think they touched briefly on some of the newer techniques. I think they mentioned one of the, um, it's like an external fixation plate for the tibia and some stuff, but, you know, I think some of the cool new technology that is sort of very recent is, um, Nuvasive released the internal lengthening plate, which was, you know, really a game changer for limb lengthening in children who are still skeletally immature, because it allowed us to basically put an internal device onto the bone for lengthening without violating the physis. Unfortunately, right now that device has um, been recalled due to some materials issues with um, an internal nail that's made of the same material. So it's mm-hmm. currently in a sort of retesting revalidation phase and we're patiently awaiting to hear when the re-release date will be. Um, but that was in essentially alpha testing um, at a couple of centers here in the U S and we really saw some amazing successes with it. I mean, we lengthened a femur that was a total of, I think eight centimeters in length and we were able to lengthen it four and a half. I mean, we literally doubled the length of this femur with an internal device, which is Mm. bananas. Right. Um, I think that, you know, with the advent of that, there has been a big push to try and look at, generally in pediatric orthopedics, devices that are more pediatric skeletal oriented. 
So orthopediatrics came out a number of years ago and has really made strides in that in that area, trying to create anatomic plating systems that match kids' bones because a child femur is not the same shape. It's not as an adult femur. You can't put the same plate on it. Um, and so they're really, you know, they're really working hard to try and acquire new technology, develop new technology um, for general peds ortho, but also for, you know, in the lengthening world, there's always a new frame coming out, a new, you know, hexapod system or a new monolateral rail. And I think the, where we're really seeing strides is the user interface with those devices. Hmm. The more, you know, we understand the engineering and the computer programming that goes into it, I think the more you can do with these systems. Um, I would caution that we have to be a little careful because I think more and more in general in ortho, we're being taught to be technicians and Mm -hmm. less, you know, we're losing a little bit of what makes a surgeon a surgeon, which is thinking through the problem and really looking at it from all angles. It's hard because there's so much out there and so many devices and so many things and you know, you fall into this trap where, well, so-and-so has described it this way, so that's exactly how I'm going to do it. But, you know, every single person's a little different, every single bone's a little different. And so, you know, really these new user interfaces for a lot of these programs are so easy to use because they take away some of the thinking. But I think it's really important that we don't forget those pieces. And so some of the newer systems are kind of making sure that doesn't get forgotten. Um, Mm -hmm. But they're at the same time allowing us to do really incredible corrections with these things that makes it more accessible to more people too. Mm -hmm. I think some of the other stuff that I'm really excited about is, you know, obviously as technology gets better, we're able to, you know, miniaturize more and more stuff. And I think in the pipeline, there are, you know, more and more devices coming to hopefully be able to do, you know, internal lengthening in small bones or abnormally shaped bones or bones with open growth plates. Um, you know, even very small bones like metatarsals, metacarpals, you know, which we're still, you know, external fixation is a great option and it's tried and true and it's the gold standard, but patients don't like it. You know, it's got its own host of issues with, you know, pin site infections and all those things. So mm-hmm. being able to use more internal devices is awesome, but it also has the challenge of we have to be able to stabilize joints. We have to be able to do so along with the development of these new devices, people are really starting to look into, well, how can we, you know, span to the pelvis internally? How can we cross the knee internally, but maintain range of motion and do, mm-hmm. you know, so that whacking a plate in there is easy enough. But if the patient sits with a stiff hip for three months, they may not recover all their motion. If they sit with a stiff knee, they may not recover all their motion. So all these little bits and pieces, you know, where everybody's kind of looking at them and trying to figure out the solutions. I personally think, you know, what's really cool and, you know, I think we're right on the tip of it is we've really, you know, we've seen dramatic changes in the understanding of, you know, genes and the molecular processes of disease. And so there's been a huge amount of development in the past, you know, even five years, we've got medical treatments for, you know, they've got a drug that was in testing, looking at reduction of osteochondroma burden in multiple hereditary exostosis. So you start a kid on this early and not only do you reduce the number of, you know, so you reduce the number of bumps, which means you potentially reduce the number of surgeries, but you avoid potentially the development of ankle valgus, of knee valgus, of growth arrests, of radial head dislocations, you know, so you're minimizing the treatment they may need. There was, you know, there are drugs being developed to try and counteract the, you know, gene um, defects in things like achondroplasia. So, you know, for patients who make the choice that, you know, they want to be taller, if they start to take this drug early on, they may need less lengthening or no lengthening at all if they can, Hmm. you know, achieve the height that they otherwise might have had they not had the, you know, FGF mutation. Um, You know, and there's a whole bunch of ethical considerations and things that go into all of that, which we're not going to get into here. I think you had Casey Humber definitely, you know, addresses the ethical issues much better than I do. Um, (laughs) But I think we're really at the tip of the iceberg and looking at the congenital limb deformities, you know, these are 
they're genetic in that it's the genetic code that's affected and it's the interpretation of that DNA that was a spelling error, a, you know, drop off mutation, a, you know, call, you know, but I think that our ability to potentially mitigate some of these things, you know, even in the prenatal, like in the fetal term, right, as soon as this thing is developed, or as soon as this thing is identified, you know, if a treatment can be performed, you know, looking at CRISPR or some of these other things where we can chop out that damaged segment, replace it with a new segment and, you know, boom, bang. Oh, you have an arm now. You know, I joke with some of my families. I'm like, we're talking about 15 years in the future here, folks. We might dip you in a bucket and your kid comes out with a leg, you know? And I, I mean, I'm joking about it, but I'm not because we don't really know. I mean, we may get to a point where we really can 3D print realistic cells and, you know, connect this new limb to you and, you know, you have a new foot. So I think there that's the area that to me is the most exciting over, you know, what will likely be my whole career. But I think over the next, you know, 15, 20 years, we're really setting up to see some really, you know, I think some amazing discoveries on the biotechnology front. Hmm. Yeah, no, that's so interesting. And it's and I think it's interesting how, as you had mentioned, the ethical considerations that are also tied into it. And that'd be a great discussion with Dr. Casey Humber. Yeah. But I know we are I you have so many things to do and I would love to finally talk to you about what your future goals and projects are for you. I know you've uh transitioned to the Paley um Institute and have been there for the past two years and I was wondering what your goals are in the next one, 10 or five, 10, 15 years. Yeah. So, you know, immediate goals are always just to continue to improve my skill set, continue to, you know, see more, do more. I mean, two years is, it always seems like a long time until you look back and realize it went by in the blink of an eye. And, you know, I am unendingly in awe of, you know, Dr. Paley and the career he's built over the last 40 years. And I, you know, I feel very privileged that I get to be here and that I get to see these things and do these cases, you know, and that, you know, to have his friendship, his mentorship, but just the exposure. I mean, I, I loved my job at Johns Hopkins, but the amount of pediatric congenital deformity cases that I have seen here in the two years I've been here my personal development has just skyrocketed. Um, you know, the ability to understand these diseases, to understand the nuances, you know, and every time, you know, I do a tibial hemimelia case, you look at it a little differently. And it's nice because, you know, the environment here is very innovative. And so it's encouraged to look at something and say, huh, you know, I know we normally do this, but in this case, that doesn't seem to make sense. I think I want to do it this way. And it's like, you know, and you can do that. And it's, mm -hmm. these are, you know, they're, every single one of them is a little different. And so you really have to look at them that way. So, you know, that part is really important. I've got a lot to learn still and, you know, a long ways to go. And I really am so excited to keep pushing forward on that front. I'm also really excited about the pool of research that I have access to here. So, you know, Dr. Paley's developed a lot of procedures and, you know, we've been doing a lot of them here for a long time. And I think we're really at a critical mass for patient quorums. So one of the big things I'm really hoping to delve into over the next, you know, couple of years is really some big follow-up studies I mean, I've got some conditions, some procedures where I've got almost 20 year follow up on now. And so really going through getting into the weeds and objectively trying to say, you know, is this, are we doing it right? Or do we need to change what we're doing? Or, you know, I think those are the really important things because everyone loves to publish a study that says, look how great we are, pat on the back. And this is an excellent report. This is an excellent outcome, but I think it's incredibly mm -hmm. important that we don't forget about the negative studies. And so coming out with something that says, you know, this is how we used to do it and we changed it five years ago and here's what we're seeing that's better. Or we changed, but you know what? We're going to go back because the change we made, we're actually not super happy with the result. Now, I, I don't know that that's what I'm going to be writing, but I think either way, it's going to be really important to put that information out there. And then, you know, I, in conjunction with that, I love publishing techniques. I, you know, I have no 
ego, no concern about sharing what we do here. And I know Dr. Pele feels the same, that the more we can get this out, the more people can see it, the more we can make this, you know, approachable, the more kids, you know, potentially, if we can train more surgeons, the more kids get access to this. Because if you are living, you know, we get emails and communications from families all over the world. And I was speaking to a mom from Brazil about her son and she reached out about, you know, a treatment we do for congenital pseudoarthrosis of the tibia. And, you know, she was like, but financially I can't travel to the U S I don't have insurance for there. And we were able to actually connect her with a surgeon in Brazil who's able to do the same procedure. And to me, mm-hmm. that is the most amazing end goal, right? Leaving a, mm-hmm. leaving a legacy of what you do yourself is one thing, but being able to leave a legacy of procedures that help the world I think is even more important. Wow. That's awesome. That's amazing. Now, Dr. Shannon, I would love to move into our final segment, which is the final five, which are the same five questions that I ask every guest that I've had on the She Can Fix It podcast. And so my first final five question for you is what is your favorite procedure to perform and why? Oh, that's such a hard question. (laughs) (laughs) It usually is. So I got to say, it's probably a 50-50 between ulnarization and the super hip. I think those are probably my two favorite. Um, I think for both of them, they're sort of, you know, opposite ends. One is reconstruction of the wrist and one is reconstruction of the hip. But both of them have an immediate impact. You take this, you know, little arm where the hand is bent over and, you know, touching the forearm and radially deviated. And by the end of that case, it is beautifully straight and it looks like a nice, normal little hand. And the super hip's the same. You take this, you know, this little leg that's, it's short and it's deformed and they can't, you know, stand straight on it and they can't wear a brace and you finish and it's literally, I mean, you make the femoral cut after you've released all the soft tissues, you put the plate in, you get this x-ray and you're like, ta-da, it looks like a hip. <laughs> and it's just, it's so incredibly satisfying. Um, plus they're each like very intricate, very complex surgeries. And I just, I love puzzles. I've always loved mm-hmm. puzzles. And to me, they're both kind of like reorganize, you know, putting it all back together, but it's, it's like solving the puzzle. I just find them incredibly satisfying. Awesome. What are your go-to topics for Grand Rounds presentations? I always think a good throwback to like the basics of limb deformity is an Mm. excellent Grand Rounds topic. Um, It's something that, you know, not everybody has gotten, has heard, or hasn't heard for a long time. I think that the basic principles of assessing deformity are so important in so many areas of orthopedics. You know, if you're going to do an ACL reconstruction, but your patient has a coronal or a sagittal plane deformity, you're putting shear stresses on your ligament and it's going to fail, right? If you're doing an ankle fusion and you don't account for the, you know, the valgus up above, you're going to have a foot that's not in the position you want it. So like, I just think it's so, it's such a key factor that, is sometimes missed or glossed over. And I think that really understanding the basics of that's super important. Plus I get to throw in some slides of like some really crazy cases, which is always kind of fun to get that ooh-ah factor. Right. Uh, Awesome. What is your favorite story slash memory as an orthopedic surgeon? Mm, So many, so many good things. It's just, I mean, when you love what you do, it's like everything's the best story, but I still think my favorite, it's like a little bit of those pat yourself on the back stories, but I was a third year resident. It was right at the end of the year. So I was about to be a four and I had two interns on call with me at the trauma center and, you know, they're about to be starting to take independent call. So we go walking down to the trauma bay and, you know, of course I'm, I'm like five, five, you know, normal sized human being. And they're both like six foot three can bench press me. Like, I'm like, Oh, Okay. So we all go strutting down to the thing and I'm like, okay, you guys are going to take care of this. You're going to set up the whole thing. And it was a patient with a dislocated hip. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, go ahead, talk to the attending, organize the sedation, get all your stuff. Well, you know, you guys are going to do the reduction, put the traction in and we'll go from there. 
So I'm just standing back and kind of supervising. And so they get everything all, all set up. And the guy is huge. He's got to be like 280 pounds. He's like a professional bodybuilder. Like he's just all muscle. And he was in a motorcycle accident. So he's all torn up. So he gets sedated and they're, you know, the two of them are sweating and grunting and one's holding the pelvis down and one's trying to do the like push and one they're doing a Captain Morgan. They're doing, you know, every named maneuver for a hip <laughs> dislocation, they're doing it. And they're like, it's not going to go. It's not going to go. It's irreducible. It's irreducible. And like the, you know, the ED attending doing the sedation is like, well, he, I, I can't, you've got two minutes. I can't keep this guy down. He's chewing through the propofol. So I'm like, okay. Before I call the attending in, let me just put my hands on it just so I can say I did. So I'm like, drop the table down to the ground. I put the knee over my shoulder, hold the thigh, stand, twit, and it clunk, set the leg down. I'm like, take an x-ray. Mic drop. <laughs> walk away. <laughs> it's like, oh my right then that I realized you don't have to be the big jock. It's not about the strength and power. It really is finesse and it's understanding. It's a feel thing. It's a, you know, and it's building your relationships with, you know, everyone you're working with. Cause the ER doctor looked at me and was like, okay, I know you can do this. Ready, go. It's, you know, having everything. it's the planning and the setup and it's the same for everything you do, but it's those little moments of victory when you get to turn around and pat yourself on the back and you're like, yes, I can do it. You know, and it's yeah. you need those, you need those moments to push you through the hard times. Cause we all hit hard times too. You have a case that goes badly, you know, or you have, you know, somebody who's upset with you and you have to kind of think back on those things and really like mm -hmm. lift yourself up and be like, okay, no, no, I can do this. Yeah. Nice. Awesome. I know we've talked a lot about, you know, life in the hospital and a lot about your work, but what are some of your favorite activities outside of the operating room and outside of medicine? Well, I'm very lucky that I now live in Florida because I went and got my scuba dive certification. Oh, no way. Um, oh, yeah. It's so fun. I'm actually going this weekend. I'm very excited. Oh, nice. I'm going to go lobster hunting this weekend. Oh, wow. Um, but yeah, so I love to be in the water. So anytime I can be out paddleboarding, snorkeling, scuba diving, mm -hmm. out on a boat with friends. Um, I got a dog this spring and I'm very nice. happy to report that she also likes the water. So it's, you know, we'll take her, I try to take her to the beach a couple times a week. Um, it's just, it's my happy place. It's very relaxing. I find scuba in particular, because once you get down under the water, I mean, you kind of have to relinquish a little bit of control. You can, mm -hmm. control, you know, you can check your gear and make sure your tank's filled and all those things. But once you're down there, you kind of just have to go with it. If you struggle, right. if you fight, if you, you know, you try to sort of, you know, control it too much you're going to run out of air. You're not going to enjoy yourself. You're gonna, so it's really, I find it just incredibly relaxing. Um, I also like to do a lot of Pilates. Um, just did a little bit of yoga the other day, which I forgot how much I like yoga, but no, I just, I mean, the beauty of Florida is I just try to be outside as much as possible. And really, mm -hmm. you know, I value, I'm lucky that the style of practice here, I don't have to take any, um, trauma call. So my, Weekends are generally free, short of, you know, research projects and, right, you know, the occasional right. call about a, a patient in the practice, but really trying to use that time to make sure that I'm keeping up with friends. Um, hopefully when COVID finally dies down, I can get back to traveling because that's my other, mm -hmm. my other love is just exploring parts of the world and cultures and places that, you know, I've never been. Right. Nice. And my final question for you, Dr. Shannon, is what advice do you have for orthopedic surgeons and orthopedic surgeons in training? Yeah, I, you know, I, I always sort of think long and hard about this one and I always come to the same answer, but I just think it's so important that you find what you're passionate about. Mm -hmm. It, it makes it not work. You know, I, and it doesn't mean you're not going to have a day where you're like, Ugh, today was a day and I'm ready to go home and, you know, do whatever I need right. to do to de-stress about this. But even at the worst of, at the worst of times when I'm beating myself up about something or I'm, you know, I, I'm excited to get up and come to work because I really, truly love what I do. I just, I'm so passionate about it. It's, I couldn't imagine doing anything else. And I think that if you are lucky enough to find that, work doesn't feel like work. Work is exciting mm -hmm. and work is engaging. And this orthopedics is such a phenomenal career, no matter 
what branch, what specialty you pick. And I think we're, you know, we're all, you know, we're already in it. And if you can find a way to really be happy in it, it just, it makes everything easier. Awesome. Amazing. Dr. Shannon, thank you so much for being on the podcast. We really, really, really appreciate you taking the time out of your busy day. And I honestly, I really wish you the best of luck with everything that you're doing. Thank you so much, Alana. It really was my pleasure to be on. And I uh, look forward to listening to all of your upcoming episodes. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of the She Can Fix It podcast with Dr. Claire Shannon. Please subscribe to our podcast to show your support. Another way you can provide support and keep this podcast up and running is to donate. You can visit our website at www.shecanfixitpod.com and visit our donation page. I want to take this time to thank my editor and co-producer, Andrea Munger, without whom this podcast would not be possible. Thank you so much for listening, and please stay safe. <laughs>